0: There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of the incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. In the King James Version, the same verse says this, and the people waited for Zecharias, and marveled that he had tarried so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is God's word.
1: Welcome to um, the parish of Churchill. My name is Justin Moffat. I'm the rector of the parish. which includes some Phillips up the road as well as Uh, the Garrison Church right here, and from my wife and from my family, to you and those you love, we wish you a marvellous Christmas. We genuinely do. All of this is the five congregations of the parish of Churchill, together with neighbours and friends and family, come together to sing these beautiful carols and to consider the nature of the story that we are hearing when we read these words. All of this, of course, leads to a picnic this afternoon, right up on Observatory Hill. Come and join us. Ron will tell you about that in a few moments' time as well as all the Christmas activities that Ron will tell you about on this card that you have in the coming weeks. I'm really looking forward to it. This message will last about 20 minutes. If you're a child, I reckon most of you will be able to hear it. The message will be fairly simple. But if you do want to count the amount of times I say marvel or marvelous, and then come and speak to me afterwards, then there'll be kudos to you. Plenty of it coming your way. I wanna begin by praying with you, not alone. I wanna pray with you. And on page 19, there's an ancient prayer. It's 400 years old, this prayer, and I'd love you to pray it with me. It's basically saying, God, help me to read and understand and inwardly digest these words uh, from the Bible. So let's pray this prayer on page 19 together. Bless Lord, you have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by encouraged and supported by your holy word, we may embrace and hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this afternoon, another They Marveled text from the Bible from the Gospels for our Advent series. And you can see the Advent series that it's already been happening on page one of this little zine. And this They Marvel text this afternoon is unusual. This one is not marvelling at Jesus, but it is about him. And it's written before he was born, long before he was born, and it's via John the Baptist's dad. It's Luke chapter one, verse 21. In the King James Version, it goes like this. And the people waited for Zachariah, and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. Why was he there so long? What's going on here? That something unusual should happen. You see, something is happening at the heart of the world from a Jewish perspective, the temple, and they don't know what it is. I wanna look at this verse as a curious door into the Christmas story. Today we start unpacking Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. It'll be 20 minutes, but we'll finish on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day with the story of the shepherds. But I wanna ask this afternoon, what is it about Jesus? Everywhere he went then, People were amazed, and even now, he captivates hearts. I mean, we were in this room. There's something about Jesus. There's a Greek word that's used in the original translations of the New Testament to describe that feeling. It's the word thalmezo. It's written there on page 20 in the outline. It means to be in wonder to be awestruck, to be astonished or amazed, to marvel. Jesus is not a superhero, despite our advertising, but he saves lives, he saved mine. He is no superman, in fact, very weak. And yet he defeats death, we say. He has God with us in frail flesh, we sung it a moment ago, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth and yet, and yet we're talking about a Jewish carpenter, a carpenter from Nazareth. There was a joke about Nazareth. What can come out of Nazareth? The highway maybe. Born to a teenage girl plucked from obscurity, born in a little town of Bethlehem under Roman occupation, promised of old, targeted from Herod by birth, at birth as a threat to despots, kings, and emperors everywhere. He never did the international speaking circuit. He never wrote anything. He never promoted his own fame. He kept running away from it. It's hard to imagine Jesus creating jesus.org and asking for money. And yet, travel the world today, look into churches, you'll find people amazed, marvelling, worshipping him. Look into art galleries, and you'll see the devotion he inspires. Peer into families and tribes and cultures and communities, and you may see the reconciliation he offers. Walk into Fisher Library at the University of Sydney. We could all go on a excursion this week, if you like. Go into the stack and look at the shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of books about Jesus, and all of them, by and large, as far as I know, are positive. Not one really, except for some revisionist works, not one really attacking Jesus for his warlike tendencies. There's no like later Jesus and early Jesus. There's not one saying that he's a force for evil, not one saying that he promoted the toxic culture. Visit certain hospitals, schools, and charities, and you'll see the care that Jesus awakens. His life was remarkable. His words, profound and simple. His miracles, baffling. Thalmazzo. Dr. John Dixon, whom we are partnering with in 2020, says this, he says, without a doubt, the best case for Christianity is the life of Jesus. And yet he is known mostly and surprisingly for dying. Young, on a bloody Roman cross, at first glance his crucifixion was for the charge of sedition against the Roman Empire, rabble-rousing. Not true, of course, profoundly not true. Put away that sword, he said. On second glance, he was crucified for challenging the religious status quo in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, culminating in some remarks about their temple being torn down. Jesus said, you tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days, and they said, he said he'd tear it down. So they charged him with terrorism. But if you look deep into his death on the cross, his death is the turning point. We say, in the history of living, his death is hope, because this is God offering his life We have hope in his resurrection. Advent is an ancient season, four weeks leading up to Christmas. A chance, really, to still our hearts in the silly season and focus on what truly matters. And we say, what truly matters is Jesus and his first coming in great humility, that's Bethlehem. But soon we say, in glorious majesty, as the old prayer book says. We prayed it a moment ago. Cheeky Presbyterian writer Frederick Beekner says this, he says, Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, only the beginning. You've got to turn up there to know God. It's not home, but the place through which we must pass if ever we are going to reach home at last. You've got to understand Bethlehem to know the heart of God. We are hoping that you have a marvelous Christmas, but secretly I'm hoping and praying for a renewal within you of amazement that draws you into the life of Jesus. Today we begin the first part in the Christmas story, Luke chapter one, we're gonna do Luke chapter one next week and then Christmas we'll do Luke chapter two. My text today is Luke 1, 21 in the King James version. The people waited for Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist and they marveled, Thalmazo, that he tarried so long in the temple. Why was he still there? Why did he stay longer than normal? Was he still alive? It's a temple, you can't just go in there and check. What was going on? Was someone speaking to him? Something's happening, you see, in the heart of the world, and perhaps you don't know what it is. Verse 21. Well, the Zachariah story that begins the Christmas story tells us five important things that I'll say briefly on page 20 of your zine. This marvel is built on certainty from verses one to four, and yet it's part of an older story, an ancient one in verses five to 10. It's by way of miraculous re- revelation, not just humans figuring things out as they go along. It's not just progressive humanity. It's about being ready for the Lord and it's to be believed rather than laughed at or sneered at. And then I want to briefly talk about the heart of the true temple at the end. First, and briefly, it's, this marvel is built on certainty. Not everything has to be wondrous all the time. You don't have to be amazed all the time for something to be true. You can have seasons of being comfortable with the life of Jesus. I know one time when I was younger, I was like, I'm not intrigued enough by the life of Jesus. And a mentor of mine said to me, actually, I wear faith like an old jacket, something I just don't want to ever take off. And yet you you don't want to settle for never being marvel, marveling at him. One writer said this, he said, it's not easy to convey a sense of wonder to someone else. It's in the very nature of wonder, to catch us off guard. I drove up to the, um, the Grand Canyon last year. <gasps> wonder can't be packaged, can't be worked up by a band, despite how great these guys are. It requires some sense of being there and some sense of inv- inv- engagement. And so we're going there now to Jerusalem and the temple, To Bethlehem next week to get a sense of engagement in order to be caught off guard and maybe even to marvel at him. But this isn't just about being amazed. Luke, who wrote these words that Dylan just read to us a moment ago, was probably a physician, a doctor, and I know there are many in the room today. He wrote this account around 80 AD saying in verses one and two that plenty of people have researched Jesus. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They had first-hand sources. None of this monks made this up in the second century. That's all guff. It's 19th century guff. What about Luke in verse three? He says, with this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, lover of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. You can work out that these things have basis. Wonder can't be packaged, it can't be worked up, but if you were wondering if this story is legit or if it's just fairy tale in a land far away there lived the prince who came, then be assured that this is written as history, verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. It's built on certainty, firstly. Secondly, it's part of an older story. In verses 5 to 10, we're not introduced to Mary and Joseph. That happens next week. But to old Zechariah and barren Elizabeth in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest, verse 5, named Zechariah. Now, we don't know a lot about him, but I love how God uses ordinary people. We're all ordinary in our own way, aren't we? Verse 6, they were keen worshippers of God, but they had very ordinary struggles. Verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able or never able to conceive when she was younger, and now they're both very old. It's part of an older story. There are many stories of childless women in the Jewish scriptures, Abraham and Sarah example, bearing Isaac, which means he laughed because she laughed. Rachel and Jacob, or Rachel bore Joseph. Hannah and Elkaniah bearing Samuel. All miraculous and all whose children serve the Lord. But here comes another, part of an older story. And Zachariah's task was an older one, one of the Jewish, one out of Jewish promises and the rituals of the temple. Verse 8 and 9, Zechariah's division was on duty, serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple on his own and burn incense. A lot of people are fond of saying that Jesus is the founder of Christianity. He's not. Well, in one sense, they're right, in the sense that the eternal son is the one by whom and for whom the world was created. In that sense, Jesus is the founder of everything. I know there are some even more cynical people that say that Christianity is founded by the Apostle Paul, trying to control people. No. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament, it's all about the ancient promises made to the Jewish people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to King David and those in exile. And in that old story, the temple in Jerusalem Is at its heart. It's a place where people went to meet God and to pray and to sacrifice a lamb for sins, for a priest to stand between you and a holy God, because you can't just approach a holy God. The priests themselves were sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the Jewish temple then and there was a place to do business with God. In fact, Jewish people called it the navel of the world at the heart of everything, a spot, a door to God. But you didn't just wander in. God was, is not so easily approached. It will require Christ's death for sin ultimately. But in any case, my point is that the gospel is, is part of a story that's already thousands of years old before Jesus came, those readings we read a moment ago. Third, it is a miraculous revelation now, Zechariah is in that inner court of the temple, and no one is with him. He's alone, doing his duty with incense. And we're told an angel appears, and I believe in angels and miracles. When Zechariah saw the angel, verse 12, he was startled, as he would be, and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, that phrase, do not be afraid, is throughout the whole Bible and is always said at precisely the moment when you should be afraid. The point here is that science doesn't give you this good news as important as science is in God's world. You can't get this revelation by board deliberations as important as boards are in a world of of corruption. This is not government policy being set as we stand on the shoulders of giants. This here is a message from an angel. It's decisive news and it is from God. And what is the news? Well, the news is a king is coming. In fact, more than that, God is coming. Emmanuel is here. The Jewish people always said God would come and save them. They just didn't expect God to have eyeballs, kneecaps, blood that could be pierced on a cross. The message is about being ready for the Lord. It's about the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 13: the angel says to Zechariah, Quietly alone, taking his time. Your prayer's been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You were to call him John, even though there's no one in the family called John. Come next week, we'll hear about that. Verse 15: He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, even before birth. And he will go on ahead of the Lord. He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, as promised in the old story, to turn the hearts of people in the right direction towards each other in love and forgiveness and towards God in in righteousness according to his will to make a people prepared for the Lord. The message is about John the Baptist who came, who was a herald of the one to come, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Jesus was a, John the Baptist I should say, was a disruptor, sorry. A person who said something like, um, stop stuffing around. Stop stuffing around. Or words to that effect. Stop equivocating, stop procrastinating, stop putting this off. Stop thinking that this is about your show and that you can just believe what you want. That's just secular humanism. In John chapter 1, we read, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Read John the Baptist, he's so full of fire. He's so like, get ready. And it is a message to be believed rather than laughed at. When Sarah found out that she was gonna have a baby in her old age with Abraham, she laughed in cynicism. God made a promise, but how do you keep it when you're that old? Of course, she gave birth to Isaac, which means he laughs. <laughs> Zechariah is a bit like Sarah. Old people like him don't have children. So in verse 18, in that room, tarrying, taking time, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel reads Zechariah's heart, and he says to Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. See, they're waiting, by the way, towering in the temple so long. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. But now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, till John is born, because you do not believe my words. You distrusted me which will come true at their appointed time. Then verse 21, the people waited for Zacharias and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. What is happening at the heart of the world? Did this Christmas story awakens? Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them when they realized that he'd seen some vision in the temple. That's why he tarried so long. He kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. Come next week to find out what happened. But let me talk finally about the heart of the true temple. That tarrying, that waiting was a door for them to ask the question, what's going on here? I don't know what it is, but is this something big? What is God doing in the navel of the world? Some 30 years later, Jesus, as an adult, would do something in the temple. He'd overturn the tables, corruption, has stopped people's access to prayer. But more than that, he came to do something to the temple. Now, I don't mean the bricks and the mortar of the temple in Jerusalem, that temple. The Romans would pull that down in 70 AD, leaving a wailing wall that you can visit today. Jesus would dare the religious leaders to tear down this temple. You tear it down. And I will rebuild it in three days, not one, not two, not four, but three days. They say that's impossible. You can't build this thing that took us 40 years to build. It's impossible. And they turned it on him to say that he's acting like a terrorist. I'll tear down the temple. No, no, you tear down the temple. But Jesus, of course, was not speaking about bricks and mortar. He was speaking about his own body, Emmanuel, God with us. He was saying, take me down tear me down put me on a cross and i will rise in three days and when i do you'll no longer need a temple to sacrifice a lamb in for the true lamb has been sacrificed for sins yours and mine jesus is saying i will be the place where you meet god come to me and live come to me and find forgiveness of sins Come to me and find rest and hope. Don't laugh at this, it's not like Sarah. Don't disbelieve it, like Zechariah. And so we marvel at Jesus and we follow him. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. Fall on your knees. I won't do that again. Lewis goes on, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Let's pray together ahead of an item that will be sung to us and then we'll conclude our time by singing Joy to the World. Let us pray together the prayer, the Advent Prayer 3 on page 21, together. We beseech you, Lord, pour your grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought to the glory of his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God for ever and ever, Amen.